0: Welcome to Modern Murders, a true crime podcast that covers murders and disappearances after the year 2000. I'm your host, Ariel Herrera. Russian is certainly not a language that I studied or grew up around. I'll do my best to try and pronounce these names to the best of my ability, but beware. I will be wrong and either some or all of the names will be wrong as well. The next story is rough, involving domestic abuse and child violence, so I caution you before listening. Shumsk is a small agricultural town with a population of 5,000 people in Chernobyl, Ukraine. The religious town is home to four churches, two Orthodox, one Roman Catholic, and one Christian Evangelical. In 1989, the Lautenberg agreement was enacted to allow refugee status to immigrants fleeing religious persecution. Specifically, Ukrainian and Russian immigrants were granted permission to enter the United States after the fall of the Soviet Union. In a small village, two people fell in love and started a romance in 1997 that would end in tragedy just five years later. In the Ukraine, An outgoing and friendly Yubov, which is the Ukrainian word for love, fell for a quiet 23-year-old shoemaker named Nikola, and despite her parents' disapproval, she went ahead and married him at the age of 17. She became pregnant soon after their marriage and gave birth to their son, Sergei, in the Ukraine. In 1998, Nikola Soltis moved from the Ukraine to Billingham, New York, to be with his mother and ailing father, while leaving behind his wife and newborn son. Nikola had no criminal record in the Ukraine, and was able to easily immigrate to the United States. After Nikola's father had passed, and unable to find work, Nikola and his mother moved from New York to Sacramento, California, to be closer to extended family. To help become more acclimated to the community, Nikola applied for a membership to the Bethany Slavic Missionary Church, but his request was pending because he was asked if he had left the church in the Ukraine peacefully. Nikola was unable to answer this question by pastors on three occasions. Shortly after moving, Nikola was able to convince Leobov to immigrate with their son to join him in Sacramento. It was reported by Liabov and her relatives that Nikola was extremely abusive to her in the Ukraine, and her family hesitated on letting her go to the United States with Nikola. Her accounts of the abuse describe how Nikola would beat her until she was unconscious, splash water on her face to wake her up, and continue beating her. Leobov's brother, Petro, said that even though he considered his brother-in-law family, that Nikola had an unbalanced temper and abused Leobov while she was pregnant with Sergei. His violence escalated by Nicola pushing her out of a moving car while pregnant and even threatening her and her brothers with an axe when they tried to take her back to her parents' home for safety. In Sacramento, David Galloway was a neighbor to the Soltys and got a tense vibe from Nicola when he approached him to move his car outside. David expressed how, quote, there was just something about his manner that made me want to move my car. Nicola's cousin, Ina Yasinski, later told police that, quote, he had mental problems. Based on the accounts from family, neighbors, and the horrible events following, Nikola was unhinged and unpredictable. Despite Lubov's family's attempts to dissuade her out of her marriage, she decided to move her and Sergei to California to live with Nikola. There was another side to Nikola that neighbors saw, a side that was helpful and giving. In New York, Nicola's close friend Anlie recalls him being a real Christian kind of guy who recited Bible verses and did not take part in drugs or alcohol. His friend recalls that Nicola was in a car accident and had back pain afterwards, which required frequent chiropractor visits and made finding work difficult. Nicola was obsessed with his reputation and outward appearances, and this explains how some people saw a nicer side of Nicola while others closer to him saw an evil side. I'm going to break down the next events in the order in which they happened. This next part does contain some graphic content involving children, so please be warned. August 20th, 2001. Before 10 a.m., Louisville was getting ready for her first day of work at the Good Neighbor store in North Highlands when she argued with Nicola about her job. In a fit of rage, He stabbed her and she was able to make it outside to a neighbor's house shouting for help. As the neighborhood watched and listened, Nicola continued to stab his wife and ended up slitting her throat until she was dead. He fled the scene in a 1995 Silver Nissan Altima and headed to Rancho Cordova, which was about 20 minutes away from his house. Blood smeared on the outside walls of the duplex was photographed by media as her body was removed from the scene by officials. She was known to be pregnant and was in the later part of her first trimester. The next stop Nikola made was to his aunt and uncle's house, Peter and Galina Kukarksky, where he lived with them just a few months prior. Nikola's two sets of adult cousins lived in the neighborhood close by with their children as well. Ina Jasinski, who was a mother to nine-year-old twin daughters, Tatiana and Galina, as well as a younger daughter, Victoria, gave information on the events that day. The girls and their cousin, Dimitri, were in the front yard of the housing complex that day when Nikola arrived. When the attack started, Dimitri's mother witnessed the attack and saw Tatiana trying to help him from Nikola. During her heroic efforts, her sisters were able to run away to safety. A 911 call around 11 a.m. called the officers to a horrific scene with two young children laying bleeding outside and two senior adults lying dead inside of the house on the second floor. Dmitri died in his mother's arms and Tatiana died on the way to the hospital. All were stabbed and had their throats cut. This bloody scene was a stark contrast to neighbors in the area who saw Nikola frequently giving gifts to his cousins when he had lived there and seemed to adore all the children. Nikola fled the scene to drive to his mother's house in Citrus Heights and arrived an hour later. His three-year-old son, Sergei, was being cared for by his mother that day, and when he had arrived, his mother initially said she saw nothing wrong or unusual about Nikola but later her story was questioned due to the fact that Nicola would have been covered in some amounts of blood after stabbing five people. It takes about 20 minutes to get from Rancho Cordova to Citrus Heights, so the fact that it took Nicola about an hour means that he could have had time to clean up or change his clothes. Whatever the circumstances, his mother let him leave with Sergey in his silver Nissan Altima, which he later left and switched into a 1998 dark green Ford Explorer and he was last seen at 8 p.m. by the mechanic who he had picked up the Ford Explorer from. August 21st. Police found the Nissan Altima abandoned with two family photos, one of which was Sergei, on his mother Leobov's lap, in the glove compartment of the car. There were handwritten notes in Russian on the backs of the photos that Nikola's mother translated for police. Police were hopeful to retrieve Sergei safely, but one of the notes had directions on where to find Sergei's body, in a field in Placer County near a tower. The other note loosely translated that his murderous spree was caused by relatives speaking out on his private matters and poisoning him with their words. Nikola was furious that Leobov's family accused him of repeated domestic abuse back in the Ukraine, and he considered Leobov to be disrespectful towards him. Nikola became upset when his pregnant wife started working at a local grocery store, and this caused a lot of their fights leading up to the day of the murder spree. There is no mention of why he was upset with her working, but I can only speculate that his anger was deeply rooted in a fragile ego, and he needed to control his wife. Any independence that Leobov gained would be a threat to his reputation and his control over her. Police immediately went to search for Sergei and found his body, which was brutally stabbed in the same way the others were. His body showed signs of bruising consistent to physical abuse according to the coroner's office. He was found in a cardboard box large enough for a 36-inch television with toys inside that were most likely used to coax him into the box before being murdered. The box was found near a trash pile under a microwave tower which was referenced to in the note earlier. Detective Garverick described how two sets of footprints one adult and one child's sandal led towards the scene, and only one adult footprint left the scene. August 22nd. Surveillance was put on his mother, Varvara's home, while police searched surrounding areas in Sacramento, as well as cities like San Francisco, Seattle, and North Carolina. Fourteen members of his family were put into protective custody by police in an undisclosed hotel nearby, and later they returned to their homes. August 23rd. Nikola was now on the FBI's 10 most wanted list with a $70,000 reward for his capture. August 26, Galina Kukarskaya, 74, Peter Kukarsky, 75, Tatiana Kukarskaya, 9, Dmitry Kukarsky, 9, were buried in Sacramento, California. 5,000 members of the Russian and Ukrainian community attended the funeral. At Bethany Slavic Missionary Church on Sunday, August 26, 2001. Five white caskets and a small white casket were seen at the funeral with people lined up to pay their respects. August 30th. On the 10th day of his escape and surveillance of Varvara's house, the garage door to the house opened and several people piled into a Mazda and sped off to an Aaron Brothers framing store down the street. It was his brother Stepan who made the phone call a little after 6 a.m. frantic. He recounted to police that he and his mother spotted Nicola hiding under a desk in their backyard when they feared for their safety and fled the house. Police gave the members of the house a panic button and a phone to call police if Nicola showed up. But neither attempts to notify police worked, so the family was forced to flee the house and there were undercover detectives outside the home that followed them to the store as well as stayed at the house. When captured, Nicola confessed to the murders and showed no signs of remorse. He was found with a backpack containing a potato peeler and a knife that police suspected were used in the murders. He had been hiding in an abandoned house nearby, and his appearance was described to be barefoot and disheveled. September 5th. He was arraigned at the Sacramento County Superior Court, where he was read the charges through an interpreter by Sacramento County District Attorney Jan Scoli of seven counts of first-degree murder, including one count for the unborn child. When Nicola was first booked into jail, he was put on a suicide watch and later spent three days in a psychiatric unit in October after he had tried to tattoo himself with a pencil. In late November, he was again admitted to the psychiatric unit for 17 days after jumping from the second-story tier of the jail housing unit, ultimately breaking his heel. He denied any psychiatric medication and was later evaluated by UC Davis Medical Center professionals, concluding that he was not suicidal at the time. Lawyer Tommy Clickenbeard was going to try and seek an insanity plea on the basis that Nicola had breathing problems at birth, and suffered debilitating headaches as a youth. Nikola grew up in a part of Ukraine that was not far from the Chernobyl nuclear plant, and the Chernobyl nuclear plant accidentally failed on April 26, 1986, which caused radiation poisoning in the surrounding areas. Clickenbeard goes on to describe that the area Nikola lived was laced by heavily polluted rivers, raising the possibility that he suffered from some mental illness caused by the environment. I looked at the distance between Shumsk and Chernobyl, and the two are about 235 miles apart, which is close, but I will include a map in the victim's blog that will show a map of the contamination, and you'll see that it doesn't really get that close to Shumsk. There's also no major river or body of water that runs from Chernobyl to Shumsk. In 2018, UNSCEAR, which is the United Nations Scientific Committee on the Effects of Atomic Radiation, reported that 20,000 documented cases of people under the age of 18 at the time of the Chernobyl meltdown developed thyroid cancer. These included people in three countries—Belarus, Ukraine, and the Russian Federation. This was caused by high levels of radioactive iodine-131, which entered grazing cattle by pastures, and then the cattle's milk had concentrated levels of iodine that was consumed by the peoples in these countries. The radiation is not directly caused to any mental health issues, but the psychological effects of the event are still relevant. I'm not ruling this out as a possibility for his psychosis, but it also doesn't seem like a strong enough defense for the insanity plea. September 8th. Leobov and Sergei's coffin arrived at the Kiev's Borsville airport and were taken by family members to be prepared for the funeral the following day in Shumsk. On September 9, 2001, there were 3,000 attendees for the funeral, which was held at the town's Baptist church. Her parents, Eor and Maria, as well as her brothers, buried them in a beautiful service. Reverend Boris Kovacek said, quote, he was an unruly person. There were many problems since childhood, in the family, in the school, and in the church. To bring such grief, trauma, such a scar will never heal. End quote. When Nicola was a child, his teacher, Polina Harbinus, described that he had quote, a certain sadness or indifference or even evil in his eyes. This child had such a character that you never knew what to expect from him in the next moment. End quote. February 10, 2002. Nicola appeared in court in a wheelchair after jumping from the second floor jail balcony in December. February 13th. While awaiting trial, Nicola committed suicide by hanging in his cell. He was able to do so between the 6 a.m. breakfast check and the 7 a.m. check using a makeshift rope from bits of cloth bedding and plastic from a bag. He used bar soap to cloud the small window to his cell and hung himself on a light fixture in his six-foot-tall cell out of view of security camera. No suicide note was left, and no reasoning was ever determined by his suicide. Criticism came from his lawyer, Tommy Clickenbeard, but I think that Sheriff Captain Jim Cooper said it best quote, If someone is bent on killing themselves, they're going to do it. Where there's a will, there's a way. End quote. Thank you so much for your time, and I would like to hear your thoughts or your opinions on this case. I tried not to go too much into my own personal opinion on this case because there's just so many sensitive topics and I don't have the academic, professional, or personal background to weigh in. I do think that this story is tragic and that we need to be more aware of those around us. It seems like sometimes we can underplay or undermine serious signs and we choose not to act for various reasons. Mental health and domestic violence are very complicated issues and can be difficult to address. If you feel like you or a family member is in a domestic violence situation, then you can call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. Again, that number is 1-800-799-7233. They're available 24-7 and they offer more than 200 languages. The calls are free and confidential. If you or someone you know is having thoughts of suicide or emotional distress, then please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1 800 273 TALK. Again, that number is 1 800 273 8255. The support is also offered 24 7, and all the calls are free and confidential. Direct quotes used in this podcast are from the following sources. Mariva Brown, Pamela Martineau, and Sam Stanton from the Sacramento Bee, Eric Bailey from the LA Times, Marina Markinos from the Ukrainian Weekly, Mark Martin from the San Francisco Chronicle, the Associated Press, and the BBC News. Without the great work of all the writers and journalists out there, none of this information would have been available for me to use in this episode. Although I have done the work in finding and researching these sources, they have worked a hundred times harder, and they continue to work hard and put out great information. I will have more proper citation in the episode notes if you are interested in reading any of the articles or sources I have used to get my information for this episode. This episode was written and produced by me, Ariel Herrera, and I also produced the intro music for the episode today. If you would like to get involved in the production of this podcast, you can email me at modernmurders at yahoo.com.